0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. But what about the believers who have died or who will die before Jesus comes back? How can I know that Jesus hasn't already returned? Did I miss it? What's going to happen after Jesus comes back? When is all of this going to happen? As I think about these four questions, I know there are at least three families in our church over the past month who have wrestled with questions like this. Who have wrestled with questions about what happens when my my spouse dies? What happens when my father dies? What's going to happen? Will I see them again? What kind of hope can I have? And that's one of the reasons why I, I not only love the Bible so much, but I love this particular text that we're going to talk about today so much because it gives us the answers for the questions that real people have when they go through real hardship. If you haven't heard, I want to encourage you to pray for uh, the Vance family this week. Uh, Liz Vance passed away uh, at the beginning of last week and they're, they're planning uh, funeral services and we'll get more information out about that. These are real people. These are real questions that people have. And again, the Bible isn't some, some morality tale that we can turn to when we, want, when we want to just feel good, when we need a pick-me-up. The Bible is here to answer our questions. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to finish out uh, chapter 4 today, which we started um, last week. And this is beginning with verse uh, 13. I'll give you a second while you're turning it there. So, if you remember, there are several gaps in the faith of the church, of the people in the church in Thessalonica. There are several things that that need to be filled in and, and Paul is in part writing this letter to fill those gaps in. And those gaps are their holiness, specifically, but not only about their sexual ethic. The second gap is their idleness and their laziness. And their third gap is their understanding about end times, is their understanding about end things. So Paul starts here in Verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. One of the things as we, as we've talked about this, this book, this letter over the past several weeks in our, in our staff meetings, one of the things that we've talked about, this I'm going to Bible nerd out on you just for a second. One of the things that we've talked a little bit about is the way that the, the last two chapters of this letter are organized. Um, The technical term for that is, is chiasm. And I'm going to read the definition and then I'm going to kind of explain it chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas sequence of ideas is presented then repeated in reverse order the result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in a passage so one of the things that we're going to see and what we'll see in chapters 4 and chapter 5 is it begins with holiness And then it talks about idleness. And then there's a really big section where it talks about end time stuff right in the middle. And then he goes back to idleness and ends with holiness. This is on purpose. One of the things that I have thought for a really long time is that Paul is an absolute genius in the way he writes. He's writing this on purpose. He's trying to draw our attention to something. So we see holiness Idleness, the return of Christ, and then idleness and holiness. Maybe your translation in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18 talks about sleep. Maybe that's the word that's used. And in the, this implication, that means that someone's going to wake up. See, when we are asleep, we are implied that we are going to wake up. And one of the things that Paul wants us to see... In this particular text today is that the way we tell other people about Jesus is not just through our words which refers back to what Paul said earlier in the letter we didn't come at you with words but we came at you with the power and with the spirit and this is how we entered into this relationship with you and you saw demonstrated us a life And one of the things as Christians is because we don't always proclaim everything about Jesus with our words, we have to do it with our lifestyle. And what Paul is talking about is there is a way, there is a way to mourn the loss of someone as a Christian that doesn't give God the glory. There's a way to think about those who have passed that doesn't give God glory. And that way is simple to mourn like the pagans, to mourn as though there is no hope. See, the way that we mourn as Christians is a proclamation of the gospel. The way we enter into hardship when we lose a loved one is a proclamation of the gospel. I really want you to know that Paul is not saying, don't mourn, Paul is not calling us to be robots. And not mourn, and not feel bad, and not feel sorrowful, and not have thoughts, not have feelings, not have emotions about the passing of our loved ones. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is there is a way to mourn that brings God honor and glory. That is how we proclaim the message of Jesus. And one of the neatest things that I've seen as I've interacted with with each of these families over the last month is the great confidence that they have in God. In God fulfilling his promises to their loved ones that they are alive and well. They are more alive and well than anything we could ever imagine right now. I know that there are, uh, Willie's in here as a pastor. Joe, I know, has done funerals before. I know a few of our elders have led funerals. And I got to say, there is something about doing a, doing a funeral service for someone who is a follower of Christ. There is a tremendous amount of hope and a tremendous amount of joy in the midst of that sorrow. And what Paul wants us to know and, and what he wants the Thessalonians to know who are concerned about this, because these are their questions. Well, what if, what if my loved one has died? Are, are, they going to, are they going to reap the rewards of being a follower of Christ? What happened to them? And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to give them hope. And this hope is centered on the resurrection of Jesus. That's the whole reason we're Christians, in case you didn't know that. Every single thing that we believe hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is our hope. That's what Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica. That's what Paul is telling us. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. Here are the questions again. What about the believers who have died or will die before Jesus comes back? Paul's answer, well, they're going to meet Jesus in the air when he returns. That's the answer to that question. I love the next one. Well, how can we know if he hasn't already returned? Did we miss it? I love that Paul gives them three signs. There will be a commanding shout. There will be the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Here's the translation. Here's the, Sue did the Sue paraphrase. I'm going to do the Moholland paraphrase. When Jesus comes back, you'll know it. You'll know. It will be, there will be such a sound There will be such a sound. There's a U2 song that says, looking for a sound that will drown out the world. There will be such a sound that you won't miss it. It will be so loud. It will be so fulfilling. You're not going to miss it. Thessalonians, you haven't missed it. You'll know when Jesus comes back, you'll know. That's what Paul is saying. What's going to happen after he comes back? Well, he will descend... The believers who have died will rise from the graves and those who are alive will meet him in the air. Like, I kind of hope I'm alive for that. I want to see this take place. Like, I want to be a part of this situation. And there are lots of questions about this. I've debated how much I'm going to talk about all of these different ideas of what this is going to look like. So I'm going to dip my toe in it briefly. One of the things that, that Paul is tapping into is this, this Greek word, which is uh, parousia. And in Greek literature, this word was used when an emperor or dignitary would visit the city. So here's, here's what's going to happen. You are in the city of Thessalonica. There's this emperor who's going to come to Thessalonica. There's a dignitary who's going to come to Thessalonica. And what would happen is all of the people in the city would go out to meet this emperor or dignitary. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, we've kind of seen this. We call this the triumphant entry, right? Jesus is riding into town. And what do the people do? They go out to meet him. And here's, and this is where I'm going to let you in on what I think about end times for a second. Um, they're not going actually anywhere with Jesus. It says they're going to meet him. Where is Jesus going? He is coming where? Down. So in this mindset of Greek and Roman thought is you would go out and you would meet the emperor. You would go out and meet the dignitary. You would welcome him and then you would come back into the city. So I think there's this really strong implication that when it comes to end times, and I know like some of you are liking this right now, some of you hate my guts right now because of what I believe about this. Okay, and I'm like, I'm comfortable on both spaces. I just want you to know that. Because as we're going to talk about in a second, that's not what this is about. What Paul is not doing is he is not giving them a chronology of things that they ought to look for When Jesus is gonna come back. He's not giving them, he's not giving if if this were in our day, like we shouldn't all rush out of here and hop on Google and start Googling end times. Right? We see this thing happening and we, we put it into this category, we see that thing happening around the world, and that's not what Paul is doing here. See, we are going to meet Jesus in the air. That that's that's what Paul is saying. We're going to meet Jesus in the air. And the next logical question that they have and the next logical question that we have is what? When? That's the, that's the million dollar question on the mind of the church at Thessalonica because they want to see their loved ones again. They're undergoing persecution. They're suffering. They're going through pain. They're going through hard times. And what they're hearing from Paul Not for the first time, by the way. There's a little bit of implication here that when Paul was in Thessalonica, he had told them about some end times things. They took what he said and they kind of ran with it. So what Paul is doing right now is he's trying to bring them back under control. We're not the only ones who go crazy when we talk about end times. And then what's going to happen in Paul's next letter in 2 Thessalonians is is they're going to hear this information and they're going to do something else with it. So in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to talk about end times again. See, one of the things that, that we want to get our minds around is if we're not careful, we will let our anxiety and our concern about end times things get in the way of what our mission is. But they have this question, when's it going to happen? Let's continue. This is First Thessalonians 5. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. One of the things I love so much, like this is, um, this is this, theoretically, this is Paul's first letter that he's written. And one of the things that I love so much about this first letter is it's almost as if he's, he's, he's trying material out that he's going to talk about later because if you're familiar with if you're familiar with other letters in the New Testament particularly Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus this concept of the armor of faith and the helmet of our salvation that's not new is it now he's going to write that later but i love this so much he's like he's just trying out developing his theology developing his understanding of how christianity works i just man it's just amazing to me for god chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. This week I had, I've had several people reach out to me reading this text uh, in advance of the week. I've had several people reach out to me, either by text or by email, kind of asking me questions about uh, this text. When is it going to happen? What does all of this mean? And here's, here's what Paul is saying, and here's the answer that I've given those that have reached out to me. Well, it's going to be a surprise, but not really. That's the answer. That's what Paul is trying to communicate in this text. This is going to happen, and it's going to be a surprise, but not really. Really? One of the things that Paul says in this text is everything is peaceful and secure. Now, in the NLT, that's in quotations. And that's in quotations for a reason. Because peaceful and secure or peace and security, that was actually a slogan of the Roman Empire. If we think back to what we talked about in Romans last year, we talked about the gospel of Rome. We talked about how how Rome was going to bring, bring peace to the world with a sword. So the Roman Empire says, peace and security, peace and security, peace and security is found in the sword of the state. But for those who are not followers of Christ, the return of Jesus will be a disaster. It will be an utter disaster. There will be no peace. There will be no security to be found. The state of Rome is not going to protect you when Jesus comes back. There will be no escape. See, for those who are not in Christ, the return of Christ is going to be a surprise. In every way we might use that word. It will not only be a surprise as what in the world is going on. What is this sound that's drowning out the world? But it will be a surprise. Imagine the surprise when you see people flying through the air to meet the one coming down. You think that'll be a surprising moment? Imagine, remember back in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends. What did all the disciples do? Looked up. Right? This this is going to be a surprising moment. For non believers, this will be a disaster. But for followers of Christ, and this is the answer to the question that I had people asking me all week long. For followers of Christ, as people who are living in the light, as people who are awake, that noise is going to be loud. We'll be surprised, we'll be shocked, but only by when it happens, not that it's happening. Does that make sense? When Jesus returns, that it's happening is not going to be the surprise. The noise will be the surprise. The people flying in the air, that'll be a surprise. Us flying in the air, that'll be a surprise. This is what Paul is saying. So what does it mean? And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. What does it mean for us to be awake? Paul is using this this language and this metaphor here. Those who are awake, those who are asleep, what does it mean for those of us who are awake? What does it mean for us to be awake? What does it mean for us to be active? I um, I have this heart rate monitor on my watch. And one of the things, without fail, every single morning, the very first thing I do is I make the one click down so I can see what my heart rate was while I was asleep. And usually, it's in the, it's in the 35 to 39 beats per minute range is what my sleeping, resting heart rate is. But usually when I hit that button, because I'm awake, It is not 35 to 40 or 35 to 39. Usually it's around 50 or 60. Why is that? Because I'm awake. And then what will happen is throughout the day, like I I check it because I'm addicted to looking at my heart rate. Like right now, it's 118 beats per minute. Because I'm excited, I'm awake. See, I think... I think people who are awake, Christians who are awake, are alert and active. And Paul uses the word clear-headed. If we are awake, we are alert. We are active. We are clear-headed. We're actually doing things. We are active. See, people who are spiritually awake are not To act like we don't know that he's coming back. We are to live like we believe it. I want to say that again. People who are spiritually awake are not to act like we don't know he's coming back. We are to live as though he is. Other than the noise, other than the flying in the air, for the Christian it shouldn't be a surprise. We should not be caught off guard by this. That's not how we should be living our lives. And when we live in the light as though we are awake, we're actually protected. That's, that's the point of the armor of faith and love, the confidence of salvation as our helmet. What that means is, is we're, we're not worried. We're not worried. We're not worried about when Jesus is going to come back. A little later, Paul is actually going to um, tell us to be thankful in all circumstances. Other texts that Paul will later write are going to say things like, don't be anxious about anything. So what I would submit to you as a follower of Christ, not only should you not be anxious about when Jesus comes back, this is cuckoo what I'm about to say. You shouldn't be anxious about anything. We shouldn't be worried about anything because of the hope of Jesus we shouldn't be fearful. We shouldn't be concerned. This isn't; These things shouldn't mark our lives. And I think sometimes as Christians, we, we're anxious and we're concerned and we're fearful. And we're so concerned about applying what Paul says here in Thessalonians, in Thessalonians or, or what we read in the book of Revelation. We're, we're so concerned about, about laying the, the newspaper I know nobody reads a newspaper. We're so concerned about laying what we read online about the news over the top of the text. Because we want to figure it out. What I would tell you is stop trying to figure it out. Remember what Jesus told the disciples right before he did his Superman move? He said, you're not going to know. The Son of Man doesn't know. Question, why do you think you're going to figure it out? See, this is is anxiety and this is concern. And what we have is confidence because God has saved us through Jesus Christ. And whether, whether we are alive or whether we are dead, it doesn't matter because Jesus knows who his people are. And I wonder what it would be like for us to live in confidence that Jesus knows who his people are, to just not be worried about it comes back later today? Awesome. I already got my run in. It's cool. If he comes back tomorrow before I get my run in, you know what? I'm probably going to get a run in in heaven. I'm excited about that. Right? Jesus is coming back and he knows who his people are. And again, the goal of all of this is it's not to give us a chronology. And this, is, and this is the part that the, the church in Thessalonica are going to get wrong because if, if you were to flip ahead, and we're going to talk about this, I think, in two weeks. If you were to flip ahead into 2 Thessalonians, what you'll see is he's kind of saying, okay, well, there are some things that have to happen first. So what the church at Thessalonica did was they heard this, that Jesus is coming back, and then guess what they did? Well, Jesus is coming back. So by now I don't have to do anything. That's the purpose of all of this idle talk. Because Jesus is coming back. So why would I go to work? Why would I serve other people? Why would I do hard things? Jesus is coming back. I think it's going to be tomorrow. So I'm not going to go. I'm going to call off. And what Paul's going to say in 2 Thessalonians 2 is not so fast. See, there are some things that kind of have to happen. But again, it's not a chronology. What Paul is trying to tell the church is they have a mission. Verse 11. So encourage each other and build, up e- build each other up just as you are already doing. See, the confident hope that we have in the return of Christ is not meant to make us anxious. It's meant to encourage us so that we could fulfill our purpose. Regardless of the consequence, no matter how hard it is, no matter how challenging it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter the persecution that we face, all I know is, is Jesus is coming to get me. And even if I'm dead, even if you kill me, because I am proclaiming the gospel to you, even if you kill me, you know what, when he comes back, like my body's going up in the air too. I had someone ask me last week, "Well, what about people who? What about people who have been cremated?" Like that's a legit, legit question. Um, I never thought of this answer until last week when the person asked me the question. Do you remember how God made man in Genesis chapter two? Formed him out of dust. You know what happens to your body when it's cremated? It's ash. It's dust. I have some really good news for you. You can be cremated and you're still going to go to heaven. In your body. So that's the thing. It doesn't, regardless of of the consequence of us sharing the gospel in a faithful way, regardless, what what Paul is telling us is that Jesus knows his people. And what this ought to do, what this ought to do is be a cause for boldness in our lives. Not a cause for fear. Not a cause for anxiety. Oh man, my friend's going to hate me because I'm going to tell them about Jesus. But Jesus is coming back for me. Oh, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen if I tell this group of people about the hope of Christ. doesn't matter. Jesus is coming back for you. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for the people who've actually been persecuted for the faith? Isn't, wouldn't this be good news for the church in Thessalonica? Because as we've talked, like this is, this is probably 20 years before the state really starts getting um, going hard against the Christians. And what they need is, they need hope. They need encouragement. Paul's not telling us all of this so we can try and figure it out. Paul is telling us so that we can be his people. I heard this fra- I've heard this phrase before maybe you've heard it, so people who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, have you ever heard that phrase before. I only found out this morning that that's actually a Johnny Cash song, which really bummed me out because if I had known that two weeks ago, Michaela, we would have been singing it this morning. See what what we want to. What we want to make sure that we're not doing, as followers of Christ, is we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. We don't want to be so focused that Jesus is going to take us out of here that we're not loving and serving. That we're not living in this way. And this, this hope and trust that we have in Jesus is not meant to lull us to sleep. It's not meant to lull us to a space of comfort. It's meant to wake us up. It's meant to wake us up. So how do we do that? How do we live lives in which our hearts are beating? When we look at our heart rate and, and their spiritual life, when we're living and moving. That's the rest of this chapter. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. I love that, that Paul's pathway for not being lulled to sleep begins with honoring, respecting, and loving your leaders. That's how, that's how it starts. If you want to be awake... What you're going to do, Church Thessalonica, Church Westway, Church Scotts Bluff, what you're going to do is you are going to honor, respect, and love your leaders. Because as Paul says earlier in this letter, they love you, they care about you, they're here to serve you, they're here to teach you the good news, they're here to teach you the gospel. And then he says, and be at peace with each other because we are not to create factions and divisions within the church. Because who wants to come and be a part of a church where there's factions and divisions? Isn't there enough of that outside of these walls? Aren't you sick of factions and divisions in our culture and in our society? sees the church what we're called to do the thing that's going to mean that we're I think the people who give in to those factions and divisions they're the ones who are asleep but what Paul is saying is be at peace with one another demonstrate unity This is verse 14. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Now, one of the things you really need to see here is that phrase, brothers and sisters, at the beginning of that sentence. He is not talking to church leaders. He is talking to the church. He's talking to the body. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. As I was thinking of, of these three things over the past week, um, last night, Ann and I, we were watching... We were watching um, one of the Jesus channels. I don't know which one it was. We were watching one of the Jesus channels on TV. And there was this preacher who was talking. And he was talking about one of my favorite texts, which is from Luke chapter 13. Um, and it's, it's this scene where these people go to Jesus... And they, they ask Jesus, they say, we, we weren't sure if you knew this, but Pilate has taken the blood of certain Jews and he's mixed it with the sacrifices in the temple. Were they, were they worse people? Were they worse sinners than everyone else? Is, like, is that why bad things happen to good people? Have you ever been asked that question? And then something else gets referred to. Jesus refers to the Tower of Siloam that fell and a number of people died. And Jesus says, were they worse sinners than other people? And kind of the whole point of of that text is, the things that happen in our world, the bad things that happen in our world, are actually actually symbolic of the judgment that's going to come on people who aren't followers of Christ. So it's pointing out, When bad things happen to good people, what's being revealed to us is that everyone is going to die. Everyone. And you don't know when. And then Jesus talks about this, gives this parable of this fig tree. Where this fig tree has has been in, in, in the owner's garden for three years. And it's big and it's lush and it's beautiful by all appearances. It's the perfect fig tree, only it's not bearing any fruit. So the owner of this garden goes to his gardener and says, I want you to chop that thing down. And the gardener says, can we just give it one more year? I will lavish it with water. I'll take care of it. I'll prune it. Can we just give it one more year? And here's the point of this parable. For people who don't bear fruit, for people who are lazy, you should know that you are on borrowed time. That's the point of that parable. You're on borrowed time. You got one year, Gardner. There's an end date. We want to warn. We want to understand that the call of the Christian is serious work. Our mission is serious. And each and every one of us, we're on borrowed time. We don't know. We don't know when that tower of Salome is going to fall. We don't know when the axe is hitting the fig tree. What we do know is we are called to work. He says, encourage those who are timid everyone has a purpose and a place regardless of regardless of how th- how much or little you think you contribute what paul is saying is for those who are timid they need to be encouraged they need to understand that they have a purpose and they have a place within the church. They need to understand they have a purpose and a place within the body. One of the words that we never use here, I'm sorry, we rarely use here, and every time it gets used, is the person always says this phrase, I'm going to say the J word, and then they use the word just. And here's when I heard the this is when I hear the word just, I'm just in greeting, I'm just in the coffee area, I just serve in the garden, I just give this much money. I just do this. What I want you to know is there's no such word as just in God's kingdom. There's no word as just in God's kingdom. Every single person has a purpose. Every single person has a place. We all have a role to fulfill. And then he says, take tender care of those who are weak. We are to pick people up, hold them up, and help them. This is our job as Christians, is to help people who are weak, to come alongside them and love them and serve them, consider them better than ourselves. And one of the things that I'll say is each one of these three things requires proximity and it requires presence. These things are extremely hard to do if you are not in proximity and physical presence with one another. They're almost impossible. And this is why when we talk about things like gathering and serving and giving and going, our interest is not just having a good head count on Sunday morning. In fact, I would say it's not that at all. Our interest is being in a place Whereas the church, we can gather together and, and we can warn one another. We can encourage one another and we can take care of one another. And the reality of it is if, if is, is this. You can't be obedient to God if you're not obedient to God. Does that make sense? You cannot be obedient to God if you're not being obedient to God. These are the things that God is calling his church to. Verse 15. Joe said last week that what Paul is doing in these, in these last several verses is he's like throwing, like he's, he's emptying his dictionary. All of the sayings that Paul has, like he's just throwing the whole thing in these last several verses. See to it that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. So here's the thing. Christians don't take revenge. Christians don't take revenge. Dave Parris said this, we're not here to defend ourselves. We're here to advocate for Christ. We're not here to defend ourselves. We don't have to go out into the world and, def- and act like we're the last bastion of morality in the world. Should we proclaim Christ? Yes. Should we tell other people about Jesus? Yes. Should we talk about ethics that are guided by Jesus? Yes. And here's the thing. Christianity doesn't need my defense. And it doesn't need yours. What is needed is for us to live it out. And to demonstrate it verse 16 always be joyful never stop praying be thankful in all circumstances i love this next little part for this is god's will for you who belong to christ jesus what is god's will for me you ever asked that question does god want me to move here does god want me to move there Does God want me to have this job? Does God want me to date this person? Does God want me to marry this person? How many kids does God want me to have? Like whatever way you have asked that question, what is God's will for my life? What I would tell you is God's will for your life is to have a character that reflects him. That's God's will. And here's the thing. If you have a character that reflects God's will, I would submit to you. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter where you live. What if you had freedom to to just go, like go and do that thing, because you and your character were so attuned to what God desired for you in terms of being thankful in all circumstances, never stop praying, always being joyful. What would it be like for you if you were so free? From the things that you are using to, 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 to bind you. So this is God's will for you. Verses 23 and 24. and Now he's going to slip right back into that holiness, peace. Holiness, idleness, end times, idleness, holiness. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. See, God God doesn't just want our holiness as it relates to our sexual ethic. Sometimes we get in this space where we think, because whatever... Whatever way that each one of us wrestles through our our sexual ethic in relation to God's perfect standard. Okay, and each of us has a deviation from that standard. You should know that. Like where whatever we wrestle with when it comes to our sexual ethic, God's not just out to fix that. And again, I think sometimes as Christians, we get so focused on the the sexual behavior of other people, and that becomes the standard by which we judge their entire moral life. And our sexual ethic matters. Our sexual morality matters. It matters a ton. But God doesn't just want holiness as it relates to our sexual ethic. He wants our spirits, our souls, and our bodies to be holy. Because you could be a really good moral person as it relates to your sexuality. You could follow God's standard of sexual morality. I know lots of people who are non-Christians, who are in a one-man, one-woman, monogamous relationship. And yet their soul is not oriented around God. Their holiness, as it relates to their spirit, is not oriented around God. God is interested in more than just our bodies. He's interested in our spirit. He's interested in our soul. And I love just that last verse 24, and God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. See, just like Jesus returned from the dead and he did, just like Jesus is saying he's going to come back and he's going to, God is faithful to us and he is perfecting us even when we don't feel like he is. Even when our own efforts fail and they will. We talked about this in Romans. God's faithfulness is not affected by our unfaithfulness. I don't mean you can do whatever you want to. I don't mean you can't ignore God. I don't mean you can't quench the spirit. But what I mean is God is faithful to you regardless of your level of faithfulness to him. God is completing something in you. My hope in this as we complete this letter today. My hope is that you'll be encouraged by this. That you will see that Jesus is, Jesus is coming back. He's, he knows who his people are. Living or dead. You're going to meet in the air. You're going to meet him in the air. And I want you to be encouraged by that. But I don't want you to just be encouraged. I want you to go out of this place and encourage others. In this. I want the hope and the trust and the confidence that you have in the return of Christ to overflow into be an encouraging person, into your living out these things for us. We want to be encouragements to one another. We want to be encouragements to those who are not believers. And I want to tell you about a way that we're being encouraging as a church to someone right now. Uh, Cody got a phone call on Thursday from someone in South Dakota. And what she said was, I have been watching Westway online faithfully. And I'm so encouraged by the things that I'm seeing. I'm so encouraged by the things that are happening. And her question was like, how can I be involved? This, is a person, this is a person in South Dakota... If you're watching, I'm glad you're watching. You should call us back because we didn't get any of your information. This is what it means to, to encourage other people. And this is, this is happening. And it's not just one another. It's, it's people who live in another state. That we may never meet until the day we're all flying away and then to come back. Wouldn't it be amazing if you were having a conversation with this person? Let's imagine 10,000 years from now. You're having a conversation with this person. And this person, and, and it just comes out that, that you were a part of Westway Christian Church. Can you imagine that conversation? What that person's going to say? Like, we're going to be in heaven for all eternity, so that might happen. We are are encouraged to encourage other people. And it's happening. And when we are obedient to what God is calling us to, the whole thing works. We are encouraged. They are encouraged. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be more people flying And this is is our purpose, this is our mission. I'm going to read the last part of this text today. Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the confident hope that we have through your son, Jesus. I pray that as we wrestle through what it means for us to live faithful lives, that the answer would come from that confident hope. We would know that you know who your people are. And that this would free us up to love and to serve and to encourage and to warn and to be your people. It's in your son's name that I pray, amen.